Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. But of course, we also bring you insight and analysis and all the debates that you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me today is, uh, as ever, uh, the wonderful Duncan Castles. Um, and we've got a Friday podcast jammed with news, and of course, with the usual bit of uh, analysis, and of course, a bit of fun as well for you today. Big news coming out of Madrid is a source close to Zinedine Zidane has told the transfer window that uh, the former France international who has been um, suffering uh, a lot of criticism as well as poor results in his second spell as the head coach of Real Madrid, has had contact with uh, people at David Beckham's Inter Miami, uh, the new expansion franchise in MLS, which that team is due to kick off next season in the MLS. That's March, returning for preseason in February. And of course, uh, Zidane and Beckham were teammates at Real Madrid uh, during uh, his spell there. And in the anticipation and, of course, the expectation in Spain that we've already spoken about in both of our podcasts this week, that Zidane may well, uh, sooner rather than later, face the bullet for a second time from Florentino Perez, the president, that he has been offered the opportunity, or at least to discuss the opportunity, about becoming head coach into Miami. Now, I'm told that the um, salary cap, which of course exists in MLS and uh, limits the amount of money you can pay to either coaches or marquee players, wouldn't be a problem for Zidane. Uh, He currently earns around 10 million euros net at the Santiago Bernabeu, but having had a very illustrious playing career and indeed managerial career, that money would not be his primary concern with regards to should he or should he not join Inter Miami. Uh, He sees that as a potentially uh, more relaxed, less pressured way to um, go back into football coaching should he be sacked by Real Madrid. And also uh, a choice of lifestyle, of course, Miami being a very attractive place to base yourself. And of course, this project is very exciting and one which he'd be in partnership with his old mate Beckham. Um, Therefore, I think the whole thing seems to uh, be quite attractive to Zidane, given that his sabbatical from football was cut short late into last season when Perez went back to him, begged him to come back to Real Madrid because of the state they'd got themselves into. And of course, since then, things have not quite worked out as any of the parties would have hoped or indeed expected. Duncan, would you see this as a... a, I mean, obviously, it would be a, a, a step down in terms of quality of league. But for someone like Zidane, who clearly feels he's suffered from burnout um, and overwork and overpressure, going into the sunshine uh, of Miami, taking on a a new club, a new challenge, one where the expectations will not be that high, to be fair, in their first season, could be quite a nice, uh, let's just say, I don't know, safety net, if he does indeed fall out of favour and into the trap door. Uh, of being fired by Real Madrid for uh, for the first time. Yeah, I think you can see it that way. Um, I think it's interesting how um, status and uh, perception of managers in football can change so quickly. Um, you know, just over a year ago, Zidane left Real Madrid of his own volition, uh, a European champion. Uh, he was the strong candidate for the big jobs that were opening up in football. I mean, the, he was being touted as the option 
alternative to Maurizio Pochettino as the next Manchester United manager. Um, also a strong candidate for the Juventus job, which is, I've, I've been told, something that interests him uh, with his connection to Juventus in the past. But now, um, having chosen to return to Madrid, having that made what I think most people will regard as a mistake to return to Madrid, having spent several months fighting with Florentino Perez over transfers, um, being denied his request that uh, the club sign Paul Pogba um, as their main midfield reinforcement in the summer and left now with a squad that midfield is a serious problem. I think anyone who's watched Madrid play this season can tell how um, difficult games are for them because they're being outrun um, and I think outsought quite often in midfield. Um, And as we talked about in the podcast, the feeling is that his time at Madrid um, is coming to an end, possibly a very abrupt end. Uh, could be measured in, in weeks um, rather than months. I think he, after the result against Paris Saint-Germain in midweek, in particular the performance in midweek, there's now suggestion that his time at, at Madrid might be measured in days rather than weeks. You look at the fixtures coming up, they play Sevilla, this weekend, who are, of course, coached by Julian Lopetegui, who was sacked by Madrid last season um, after being the initial replacement for um, Sudan as manager and, I'm told, is extremely highly motivated to get a result um, in the game against Madrid this weekend. They then play Osasuna in midweek and then they have um, the Madrid derby against Atletico next weekend. So a set of fixtures you could easily see going in the wrong direction uh, for Zidane and potentially Zidane exiting as a result. Uh, And then if he has the option to go to America, um, be well paid, have a nice lifestyle at a a startup team where there will be, I guess, a a limit on the expectation as to how, how well the team does and and obvious excuses if they don't do particularly well in the first season. Um, and then sit and, and wait for, for football to roll on and if he fancies a, another job at the at the top level of, a, of European football, wait for those opportunities to present itself after people have forgotten about this second spell at Madrid. Well, of course, as we all know, as one door closes on a manager, it means the door opens for someone else. Um, Real Madrid... Uh, Unlike last season, uh, I believe, when uh, their sporadic approach to firing and hiring coaches saw them have three in one season, obviously, as Duncan mentioned, Julian Lopetegui was followed then by um, Solari as well, uh, who was then sacked to have Zidane come in. Um, Duncan, you have some information regarding, I think, evidence that... Josie Mourinho um, has turned down the opportunity to chase money in favour of waiting for a job to come up that he feels uh, befits both his reputation and his achievements in football. And of course, as we know, and we have mentioned lots of times, he retains a very good relationship with Florentino Perez, even if the Spanish media do not have a lot of love for him. And of course... He is available. Yeah, as we said uh, many times in this podcast, Florentino Perez tried to get Mourinho back to Real Madrid last season while he was still coaching Manchester United. Um, Mourinho turned that down because he didn't want to quit Manchester United um, and was sceptical about going back to Madrid. Um, He has been very consistent in all of his interviews in saying that he wants to get back to the top tier of European football Um, he wants to prove himself he wants to win again he wants to work in the right circumstances he said he's had lots of offers from elsewhere Um, that's true the most lucrative of those offers um, came from China and I can tell you that the sums offered to him were incredibly high the, the figure I've been told was 35 million euros net per season um, for three years 
to coach a club side in China and to coach the, the national team simultaneously with the view of um, taking the national team to the next World Cup. So um, that salary is essentially, um, well, far, far above any salary a manager has ever been paid before and also put them on the tier, the, that top tier of, of earners in football as a whole. So probably just behind Lionel Messi after you factor in the huge signing on bonus that, that Messi and his father managed to um, extract from Barcelona by running his contract down to stage where they thought they might lose him for nothing. But the same sum as Neymar is on at uh, Paris Saint-Germain gives you an idea of what, um, what his value remains in the global market. Um, and I think, as you say, his, uh, his desire and his intensity and intention to get back into um, top-level European coaching when he was prepared to turn down an offer like that and wait for the right proposal to come around. I guess one question, obviously hypothetical at this moment, Duncan, is um, people often say never go back. And in this case, uh, it looks like that should have been the case for Zidane. Um, Mourinho went back to Chelsea, albeit he did win, obviously, the Premier League title in his second spell there, but it did end badly. Would it be advisable? given that there will be some um, people in Madrid, especially the media, who will be um, averse to his reappointment. Should he go back? Um, uh, and does he still have the will and the strength to not just succeed on a pitch, but effectively prove people wrong? Yeah, I, look, I, again, you can look through those interviews that Mourinho's given and... and and one of the things he emphasised, particularly at the start of this process of being out of work, was his desire to have the right structure around him, um, to have the right support from a technical director, a kind of conduit to the, the president, um, and, and and work in an environment that, that understood him and uh, and would work coherently for the, for the good of the football club. And I think... You know, you can ask those questions um, about Real Madrid, for sure. Um, he does have the relationship with the president, which is um, obviously a powerful thing. But uh, the president will always look, eventually look after the president's own interests, and um, they are, they they generally diverge from those of the manager at some point. There, I guess a lot of the dressing room um, problems that he had in terms of individuals have exited. Uh, Real Madrid now. Sergio Ramos is still there, but um, Iker Casillas is gone. Other figures he had issues with have uh, uh, departed. So that makes things easier. Um, and I, I guess it also is easier in the sense that the team has been failing for over a year now and there's a real recognition that the, there's a problem in the squad and that fundamental changes have to be made. So that, that would be a good platform uh, to come in from but um, you know he knows how difficult managing Real Madrid is he's been in that situation before he knows how demanding the press is and um, how powerful the dressing room can be and the you know the vested interests that work around there so um, I think that there's still a, you know there's a difficult decision to be made as to whether that's the right job to take um, but you know, these things are easier when you've had a long break, um, when you've got your energies back, you've got your appetite back and um, and you're desperate to get back into the game. And I think that's one of the other overriding things you see whenever um, Mourinho is talking about football and giving interviews at present, as you can see how much it hurts him to be out of the game, how he doesn't want to be in a television studio commenting on how other coaches are working and how players are operating. He wants to be a on the touchline, managing himself, and you know he seems to proceed almost every television appearance with, with the statement that he doesn't actually want to be in the TV studio. He'd rather be in the stadium, um, just telling the players what to do and, and guiding them during the matches. Well, of course, should uh, Jose Mourinho rejoin Real Madrid, I'm sure we can expect Paul Scholes to be um, leading the uh, analysis on Spanish football uh, in Spain <laughs> every week. 
<laughs> that would be very interesting, especially if he's learned Spanish. Uh, good luck with that, Scorsese. Um, but from football coaching to football finance. And Duncan, some interesting news um, from Spurs. We uh, have heard lots, obviously, over the last 18 months about the increase in the um, cost of the new Spurs stadium, how that's affected their ability to operate in the transfer market. But you have some news regarding a refinancing of the debt on the stadium, which could have consequences both regarding um, their ability to spend, but also the possibility that they are more attractive now to any new investors with regards to either part investment or indeed whole takeover. Yeah, the, the billion pound build of um, naming rights lane, which is yet to have its naming rights applied to it, um, which also was more than double the original I like plan. naming rights lane, Duncan. I think that's great. I think, I think it's like an advert in itself. <laughs> <laughs> naming rights available here. Apply to the transfer window and we will um, take a small percentage on the on having your name applied to the stadium. Let's not say small. That's too, that's too, that, that's premature. <laughs> well, talking about small percentages, that's what Tottenham have announced today, that they've raised over half a billion of new finance, um, that the total um, long-term debt uh, for the club has gone up to £637 million um, with an average maturity of 23 years. So they've kicked those payments um, and the overall cost of the stadium well down the path. Um, but most importantly, at uh, an average coupon, uh, average interest rate of 2.66%. Um, so if you calculate that out, that I would, uh, my calculations are that amounts to about £17 million per year to service the interest on the debt, which is not a great deal of money, all things considered, and has to be um, regarded as a, as a major success for Daniel Levy in terms of um, solidifying the club's books. And I think, and this is the, the interesting thing here, we, we know that Tottenham Hotspur are available for sale, um, as most Premier League clubs are. Um, and part of the project of building the stadium, um, getting them into the Champions League, building a new uh, training ground was to have a, a kind of perfect package to sell to a buyer who wants a top Premier League club um, based in London with all the groundwork done. So, so Levy has done the hard labour of building the training ground, not so, which isn't wasn't as difficult as the stadium project. Um, all of it's in place now. If you want to buy the club, you buy something which has those assets, has a good squad, has the position in the Champions League, has, has the status of being one of the top six clubs in the Premier League and all the financing sorted as well. So you know that um, the, the, the payments on the debt, should you wish to leave it as it is and not uh, wipe that debt out, um, are minimal. So um, I think that, that this is you know, the key take from what they've announced today is that um, if you're looking to buy a Premier League club, Tottenham are probably the most attractive asset and package, far more attractive than, for example, Chelsea, um, which we know are available. And Roman Abramovich has sort of discreetly placed on the market for sale um, the Chelsea come with no stadium. Uh, yes, the, the training ground is built. Uh, the squad's not as good as Tottenham's. Um, you have that massive headache of, of if you do want to build a stadium, it's going to be extremely expensive to uh, build it. And the, the sort of debt that has been covered by Abramovich but remains as debt on the parent company's books rather than the club's books and the questions over how that gets handled. And, and I think even questions of um, ownership structures, etc. I, I know that people have, who have um, looked at the prospect of buying Chelsea um, have, have found due diligence quite hard to do because much of the ownership traces back to Russia and, uh, and it makes it more legally complex to, to try and do a deal. So contrast that with Tottenham, 
Um, and if you've got no particular interest in the history of the club or their recent success on the field in terms of winning trophies, um, no real affinity for um, either club as a supporter, which is generally the case when you're buying football clubs these days, um, Tottenham stands out as the one you'd want to buy, not Chelsea. So let's just make a, a kind of real-world comparison here, Duncan. If um, any of our listeners wanted to borrow 20, 30 grand uh, from their bank uh, to do some home improvements or any kind of uh, work, et cetera, et cetera, or even just have a lovely holiday, they'd be looking at between 4 and 7% interest on that loan paid back over three, four, five years. So Tottenham have managed to get 2.6% on almost or more than half a billion pounds that's a very, very attractive rate for anyone. And of course, when you buy a football club, you have to buy the debt as well, or at least you inherit the debt. So what Tottenham have done very cleverly, or Daniel Levy's done very cleverly, and Joe Lewis, the owner, is negotiate a interest rate, which, if compared to other Premier League clubs even, um, is very favourable in terms of whoever wants to come in and invest or indeed buy the club outright. Exactly that. Yeah, they. Um, yeah, it's uh, another bit of clever uh, financial management from Daniel Levy um, and Joe Lewis. With, as I say, um, I think the the, the long term intention of making a lot of money on the um, on the sale of of Tottenham as a as an entity as a unit um, to the very sparse number of uh, investors are able to put multiple billions of pounds down to, to buy Premier League clubs these days. And of course, we need to also point out that when you buy a football club and, and inherit the debt, the money that you pay to the current owner does not include the debt. It actually is subtracted from the money you pay. So you inherit the debt. So that's a, 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 net, a net payment, if you like, of whatever it is to the shareholding of the club itself. So in, in this case, Joe Lewis, Daniel Levy and the investors make all the money on the club, but don't have to pay the debt back, which as we have pointed out is over half a billion pounds. Very interesting in the next few months to see what happens at Tottenham Hotspur um, with regards to anyone who's interested in taking over. But as you said, Duncan, they've become a kind of example of the one-stop shop for uh, any incoming um, takeover bids in the sense that they have the stadium, the training ground already done, as well as refinancing of the debt very much in hand as well. Back to the football from uh, this week. Uh, to start with, and we've had a little bit of a dawn uh, of the kids, Duncan, in terms of um, Arsenal. Um They've had a lot of criticism in recent weeks for the way in which they've conceded leads, etc., and the way that they've defended, etc., as well. But against Eintracht Frankfurt in the Europa League, they played exceptionally well. And one player in particular, Joe Willock, um, who you tipped, uh, I have to say, and doffed my cap as well at the same time, um, scored and was outstanding. But not just Willock. Um, it just did look like a very good performance against a very competent Eintracht team as well. Yeah, Joe Willock and um, Bakayo Saka, um, 18-year-old winger who was making his second um, first-team start for Arsenal, um, who scored and, um, and set up goal and generally caused Frankfurt problems all night with his ability to run at them at pace. Um, and it, I mean, the goal he scored was a, a very nicely taken um, left-foot strike into the bottom corner after being set up by um, by Nicola Pepe. So, yeah, um, Arsenal have always emphasised uh, when they were talking about this rebuild this season and trying to do it on a limited budget and, you know, the careful kind of uh, stage payment structuring deals that they, they used to surprise um, people in, in taking Nicola Pepe, who was a top attacking target across Europe, um, to Arsenal. They always emphasised that academy was was part of their strategy, and uh, and they wanted to see more of their their younger players promoted into the first team and expected them to to be good enough to deliver. And I, you know, 
I don't want to go overboard on, on Saka because you can quite often see young players, um, particularly wingers, I think when they come into the team for the first time, they can surprise opponents. They don't know, they haven't done scouting um, and uh, pre-match analysis on them, probably not even expecting them to be in the lineup, And um, they can have really good performances um, initially and, and what you want to see is a consistency of performance. But, but he is obviously a talent and Joe Willock, as I say, um, I thought was very, very good against Liverpool um, in a central midfield role um, earlier this season. Um, was involved in creating chances for them. Just, just has a strength um, on the ball, a uh, physical strength to to nip in and take possession away from. I mean, he was doing it against Liverpool, who are some of the strongest players in the in the Premier League, um, and. Um, quality of passing as well. He played as a number 10 last night. Um, looked good there too. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, it's a, it's a positive, um, certainly for Arsenal. Um, and, you know, kind of throw back to what they've done um, down the years, which they've always had uh, an ability to produce a degree of quality um, from their academy and get them into the first team. Well, I recall Cesc Fabregas becoming the youngest player to score a goal in Premier League history, Duncan. Um, we have another youngest player to score for Manchester United and Mason Greenwood, who scored the winner against FC Astana as well in the Europa League on Thursday night for Manchester United. Sons of Solskjaer seems to be a bit of a theme because he has been promoting it for a few weeks now. He has said that he wants to follow the United tradition of blooding young players from the academy, um, of putting his faith in those players, as well as recruiting younger players as well for Manchester United. Um, another, you have to say, positive result for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, in a season which has so far produced mixed um, outcomes for the manager. But um, I think it's clear that Mason Greenwood became the story as soon as he scored that winning goal, which, of course, was very positive, both for Solskjaer and United. Yes, um, sons, of, sons of Ragnar Solskjaer is kind of a Vikings theme to, uh, to Solskjaer's selections. And, 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 you know, there's obviously an element of PR involved in the pushing of the academy. He knows how proud Manchester United fans are of their tradition of, of blooding young players and, and developing successfully um, young players into um, stars of the team. And you, I think we saw him do this at the end of last season. Um, in the last match, home game of the season against Cardiff, he put out six uh, academy-produced players um, in the midfield and forward roles, and, and that obviously backfired on him. Uh, in that they lost the game at home to Cardiff, but I, you you know what would have happened if they'd won that game. It would have been a uh, the story would have been Solskjaer starts uh, all these academy graduates and look how positive it was. I think last night there was a, an element of that as well. He had five academy graduates in the in the starting lineup, so Axel Tuinzebi um, playing in the defence. Um, then Angel Gomez and Tahitich with Rashford centre forward and Greenwood right hand side. So all four um, attackers were academy graduates. Um, Greenwood took his goal very well. Um, not a surprise, as we said on the transfer podcast some time ago, he is the definitely considered to be the best talent that Manchester United have in their academy at the moment and the one who I am hearing is genuinely capable of being a regular for Manchester United and a top performer in his career. The other ones, um, I think I wouldn't get too excited about the way they played last night. Uh, I think it's telling that United's goal came after both Chong and Gomez were substituted and replaced by more experienced um, attacking players in Juan Mata and Jesse Lingard. Um, talk to people who have worked with these players in the past 
and they say that they're good. Um, uh, they rate Boston Gomez as, as having an ability as footballers, but question whether they really have enough to be regular players for Manchester United. And we're talking about a high bar here. To be a regular starter for Manchester United, you really should need to be exceptional. Um, Gomez, there's obviously an issue with his height, very slightly built, so that makes it even harder for him to 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 really claim that status um, at Manchester United. And you know, the general feeling was that the academy at Manchester United wasn't particularly good. I mean, a comment I had from someone who coached there was. Um, some of them, you ask yourself what they were doing at Manchester United um, and you know, they weren't impressed with the standard of players that were there. So how will this work for Solskjaer? Um, I think he has to be careful. I think he can, he can overdo this and he can and do himself damage. And he, he got a positive result last night um, against Astana. But we are talking about a team that you would expect Manchester United to roll over at home and they had some they had some dangerous moments um, they did allow defensively they allowed a stand in several times and uh, with a bit of better finishing they could add some some uh, interesting challenge ahead of them to to get a result from that game on the other hand Manchester United could have scored very early uh, Rashford had a lot of good opportunities that he failed to put away um, but I mean I think in general Solskjaer does need to he can overplay this. Uh, I'm going to use academy players line um, because I I'm not sure how many of them are actually good enough to be Manchester United players. I think Scott McTominay has demonstrated that he is a reliable option in there, um, but uh, Greenwood clearly has the ability. Uh, the, the problem you have then is um, is his development path right got to be careful not putting him in the team too much um, and make sure that he doesn't lose confidence um, through being in the team and, and not performing. Um, and then the other ones, well, I think they've got a lot to, uh, to demonstrate that they're, they're of the required standard going forward. Now, Duncan, you mentioned, that, and I think it's correct, that um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has promoted um, this philosophy of, um, which of course um, was the same as Sir Alex Ferguson, of uh, giving academy players an opportunity, um, bringing in those younger players in order to uh, blood them, but also let them progress at the uh, correct rate with regards to how their Manchester United careers will pan out. And obviously the class of 92 is the you know golden example of you know, what you can do if you've got the right players at the right time. However, interestingly... That doesn't seem to be what the Manchester fans think of that particular idea. Less than 50,000 was the estimated attendance at the Theatre of Dreams last night. Made it feel like the Theatre of Mediocrity, to be honest, because that's a very, very disappointing crowd for a stadium that holds 76,000, for a stadium that expects to be full and completely behind any Manchester United team on a European night. Now, Two questions I'd like to put to you. One, um, is this the result of Manchester United fans being fatigued by the fact that they're no longer in the Champions League? And secondly, um, will the Glazers look at this as a dangerous um, moment for them in terms of the desire for economic growth uh, to see less that such a big reduction in a should be a Category 1 game for Manchester United at home. Well, the Glazers won't be happy that they're not taking as much money through the turnstiles as they could from the game. Um, I think you make a good point. There's this sort of desire to see um, young players succeed at Manchester United, but um, when it came down to it on Thursday night, um, the crowd didn't reflect that desire to see them live. Um, you have to also bear in mind it was Astana, so it's not a great draw uh, in terms of getting people to go to a game. Well, I think the test will be once we get deeper into the Europa League and they get uh, more glamorous opponents, what kind of attendances uh, 
turn uh, turn up for those matches. Um, I mean, you, you you talk about Sir Alex Ferguson and his ability to blood youth, um, and there, there's no doubt about that. He did it throughout his career, but he did it when he knew it would work for him. He was either bringing players in who he believed and was able to judge were going to be top players and for the purposes of getting him into the team and getting the team to play better. Or he put players in the team to, to market them and make money for Manchester United. So, you, you know, you could have a long list of players that, that Ferguson would kind of give a certain number of starts for a title-winning Manchester United team and then sell for substantial amounts of money, knowing that they they weren't good enough for his squad, but because of the glamour um, and the association of playing for Manchester United could uh, generate a bit of cash to be spent on better players. Um, He wasn't ever doing it for the sake of playing youth. He wasn't ever doing it for the sake of, um, I want to tell a story about putting kids in the team um, because fans like the idea of kids in the team. And, and you know, this isn't a, a purely a Manchester United thing. I think it's general to, to most clubs. Supporters want to see um, their own team's players coming into the side. And you've got that sense of the unknown and that, uh, that, that expectation that they're going to be and turn into fantastic players because you don't really know what they're like because you haven't seen much of them before and you've not seen them at senior level before and that's it's a it's a common theme and I think it's a common theme for players for for supporters to have overly high expectations for academy players because of that I you know and you counter it again and again as a football journalist it's this this player should come into the team because he um, he's got a good track record for the academy and he's at our academy therefore he must be good um, and, and he'll be the answer to the problems there's a reason why most academy players don't make it into the top uh, Champions League teams because it's very, very hard to displace the the established individuals there. We've got a bit of an odd season in the Premier League at present because there is, you have Chelsea deliberately using academy players and you have um, academy players appearing at other sides. And, you know, as we said in the podcast a few weeks ago, we're probably for the first time for years, we're going to see the number of homegrown um, English players playing Premier League uh, minutes. Almost certainly going to see that increase for the first time for years. But and, and that's a reflection that there is a bit more quality at England youth ranks. But does that mean that every academy player or even uh, a huge number of academy players are good enough to be starters for uh, big six clubs? I don't think it does. Well, Manchester United's best result of the season, Duncan, came arguably in the first weekend of fixtures when they defeated Chelsea at home. And in keeping with the theme of youth, and of course in what has been a very interesting week for the youth of the world in terms of protesting against climate change, the climate at Chelsea certainly changed under Frank Lampard with regards to him introducing youth players and not depending on um, old er and uh, reliable professionals. Frank's fledglings, I think we're going to christen them, along with Sons of Solskjaer. By the way, that's trademarked everyone out there who wants to uh, maybe try and intervene on the uh, Transfer Window podcast's uh, acronyms for these guys. Frank's fledglings face Liverpool on Sunday in what is obviously the game of the weekend. Now, what we've seen so far is a bit of up and down, Duncan, from um, the likes of Mason Mount, um, uh, Tammy Abraham, uh, also uh, Fiaki Tamori as well. They've all played well in spurts and and, and also um, been susceptible to conceding late goals. That's not the young players, obviously, on their own. That's, that's the whole team. I think having lost that game at Old Trafford in the first game and the experience of that, now playing the European champions and a very experienced and dangerous team in Liverpool at home, we can probably say that this is the acid test for the fledglings on Sunday afternoon. And um, 
it could well be a day when um, Lampard himself discovers just how good or how mentally strong the team and the players that he's put his faith in um, are. What do you see with regards to um, how this game will be played out uh, in terms of, because we know the tactics of both teams, they're quite similar. Um, and also, uh, there is a fierce rivalry, as we know, uh, between the Liverpool and Chelsea. Uh, and it could be a, a big, well, it's a big game for both clubs in the sense that, obviously, Liverpool undefeated, but also Chelsea uh, attempting to reassert themselves in this particular competition using younger players? Well, if you look at the recent games between Liverpool and Chelsea, last season, um, Chelsea beat Liverpool in the League Cup um, early in September when they were still on a high um, at the start of Maurizio Sarri's reign. And then they were very unfortunate to uh, draw to Liverpool at home the weekend after that, um, Liverpool needing a late goal to, to equalise there. Um, they lost the, the final uh, game against them. And Lampard's already played um, Liverpool this season. Again, um, I think unfortunate not to get something out of that European Super Cup game. Um, I think I would be right in saying that's probably the most experienced side he's put out this season was in that, that Super Cup match. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, it was. It'll be interesting to see what he does this weekend, given that he's had definite success with um, a number of the young players in recent weeks. Um, but also they played their Champions League tie, um, first Champions League tie under Lampard this week and, and lost because probably a bit of inexperience and naivety at the end of the game uh, that, that, that they could have um, could have come away with a result from. Um, he's going to be missing Mason Mount. Um, so obviously, probably the academy player he's had the most faith in and, and made most central to his system won't be available to him. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if he, if he brings uh, Christian Pulisic into that role. Um, or chooses uh, a more experienced player, Pedro or William, there. Um, and, and, and interesting to see what formation he uses, because having moved to a um, three-centre-back system, whether he will stick with that against Liverpool or go back to the, the way they played um, in the Super Cup match. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it'll be a fascinating game. And I think... I think it would be a bit of a challenge for Jurgen Klopp in terms of guessing how Lampard will set his team up for the match. And um, and it's obviously an important game for Liverpool, uh, given that they've they've lost for the first time in midweek um, and are in that position where they have a five-point lead over Manchester City, uh, with Manchester City having a number of injuries in defence, uh, missing a number of key players, and um, you know, if Liverpool can go into a game against Chelsea this weekend and take another three points from that match, and leave the pressure on Manchester City at this early stage of the season, that's a great thing for Klopp and his team in terms of the psychological barrier of leading the race and the psychological barrier of ending that you know multiple decade wait for a Premier League title. If they were to drop points in that game, I think you, you start getting questions asked again um, about the some of the demons around this team. Um, so, good, good game to watch, for sure. Chelsea, of course, yet to win a league game at home under Lampard, Duncan. Um, I suspect one of the big, or probably the most important question for Lampard going into this game is does he play it tight and on the break against a very, very obviously um, experienced Liverpool side who do the same thing? Um, or tell his team to go out and play expansive football and take Liverpool on, press them high, try and get a goal early or a couple of goals ahead 
and then try and shut it out because that would probably, as you said, one of Klopp's greatest kind of uh, uh, problems with this game is he probably doesn't know how Chelsea are going to play. And Mason Mount's out, and I think it will be the case that uh, Barkley or Pedro will play in the number 10 position. Um, uh, and possibly Pulisic could play there as well. Um, however, he could surprise Klopp and try and effectively ambush him in the first half and therefore make the game much more interesting. Well, you know Frank far better than, than I do, uh, having written a book of his life uh, together with Frank uh, not, not so long ago. How, how do you, what's your assessment of how Frank will approach this game? Will he, do you think, do you see him playing it defensively and cautiously? Or is his instinct to, to go after a team like Liverpool? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't see him playing it defensively. It's at home. If it were at Anfield, I think his mind would be um, more bending towards, uh, let's just keep them out and play on the break. I suspect um, that he will put his trust and faith in his players because that's what he's done already this season. And it would be a big statement for them to beat Liverpool, the unbeaten uh, team in the Premier League so far this season. Um, as I said, I think it's an acid test for Frank with regards to um, how far they've come in a short time. Uh, they've displayed some remarkable um, attacking performances in terms of scoring goals and getting results, uh, considering the lack of experience, if you like, in the team, uh, which has included scorers under 21 um, uh, against Wolves. So I would pretty much expect that he will come out and try and take Liverpool on at their own game. And that is to play high press on Liverpool's defenders, um, who we know can be susceptible to giving the ball away. Uh, we've seen mistakes which have been unusual by Virgil van Dijk uh, and Matip as well in the last seven days. Uh, I think that he will, yeah, I think he'll he'll go for it. Um, obviously, if that backfires, any coach will then revert to plan B, which is let's limit the damage and see what we can get out of the game. But I don't think that he'll tell his players to go out and, and play for a draw, which is what Sarri would have done last season, or indeed Conte might have done as well. Um, I think Frank's ambition is much greater than that and he would prefer his team to uh, attack and play to their strengths rather than um, sit back and, and, and hope that Liverpool don't break them down um, through their sheer rate of passing and running, which of course is what they do to most teams. Yeah, I, th I think it'll be interesting to see how Klopp sets his team up because Klopp a lot of his success last season was to play quite conservatively um, when he had that stronger defence with, with Virgil van Dijk and Alisson in it. Um, they, weren't, they didn't go into as many games as they used to aggressively pressing opponents. They were, they were happy enough to, um, to ride on the defence and wait for opportunities to score goals and, and, and pick opponents off. So they, he does have two ways of playing now. And... Um, You'd have to say that having watched Lampard's Chelsea um, for this first part of the season, one of the themes has been that they are a team that, that put a, push a lot of bodies forward, attack very aggressively early in the game. Um, they, they want to press opponents high up the field. Um, and they, they quite often um, tire themselves out in matches. And you know they, They've had a lot of games where they've been easily the stronger team in the first half. Um, got ahead and, and then um, fallen away in the second half of matches. Um, you obviously have the Manchester United game where they were picked off by pretty naive um, defending and, uh, and pushing too many bodies up the field. Um, and, you know, we know that one of Liverpool's great strengths is that their physical output is almost always higher than their opponents. They're a team who have an almost unerring ability to outrun their opponents and um, and also suffer very few muscular injuries. Um, that's been one thing that, that Klopp has managed to um, to introduce 
to Liverpool with various um, additions and changes of, of staff uh, and, uh, and changes to the, uh, to the preparation methods. So um, you'd expect that having watched Lampard's Chelsea so far, he'd be thinking um, there's the possibility of letting them come at us and, uh, and, and take advantage of them um, on the counter-attack. Uh, and when the team is tiring in the second half. Well, it'll be very intriguing to see what pans out on Sunday afternoon as um, Chelsea take on Liverpool at Stamford Bridge. As I'm sure all of our lovely regular listeners know, we like to do a quick fire round based on the match of the weekend. Uh, it is legendary for being the non-quick fire round. I'm pleased to say that um, we're going to turn that on its head. Uh, today, because we were going to do a quick fire round based on com- combined Chelsea versus Liverpool 11, um, but on um, effectively conversations between Duncan and myself, we decided that it basically would be Liverpool 1 to 11. Duncan, would you would you agree with that? Uh, N'Golo Conte, I think, is the only one, only Chelsea player that would uh, would get into that that combined 11. I'd have. And he is injured as well, though, as well, isn't he, at the moment? So he might, he might not even qualify. I'd even have Adrian ahead of Kepa as goalkeeper. Um, strong, strong words, strong words. I, I do like Adrian as a goalkeeper, and um, I think he's done a, a good job for Liverpool coming into the team. Had an absolutely exceptional save um, against Dries Mertens in the, the Napoli game, one that, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's worth actually going back to the highlights to watch and uh, and just see how he manages to to pick pick the ball um, from very close range out from underneath the crossbar when he's already committed himself to a dive. Probably the probably the best save I've seen this season. So um, yeah, uh, there's not much point doing a combined eleven, is there? So despite Duncan's best attempts to sabotage my promise that this would be the, actually a quick fire round. Um, <laughs> By explaining everything about Adrian, um, I will mention only one thing, and you all know what it is. And that's as long as James Milner's on the team, I don't care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Uh, we appreciate all of your support, and of course, if you want to continue the debate, then please do at Transfer Podcast, as you know, on Twitter and individually with uh, myself and Duncan. That's at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. Please engage with us. We always are pleased to answer your questions and engage as well in any debate that you have with things you've heard on the podcast. As ever, if you liked what you heard, then please log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and thank you to the um, all the people who have done that. Um, it helps us uh, increase the community for the debate uh, as well as helps us to reach out to people who've not even heard the podcast chat, which, of course, they're missing out, as we all know. Um, we'll be back on Monday. All I have to say is, uh, if you're listening to this on the way to the game, uh, your game that you're going to be following on Saturday or Sunday, then uh, best of luck to you and your teams. Um, but from Duncan and I, uh, we shall um, see you through the transfer window on Monday. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.